1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
0: There's an old legend about a patch of dirt in Alamogordo, New Mexico.
2: People talk to me a lot about the legend.
0: They say if you walk out over the sand dunes to a specific spot in the desert and start digging, you'll find treasure. Thousands of copies of one
1: of the epic flops in video gaming history were supposedly laid to rest in a New Mexico City's garbage dump. ET for Atari was so bad,
3: the company tried to get rid of all the copies. It's rumored truckloads of that game were buried
1: in an Alamogordo landfill back in 1983.
0: Atari made a video game based on the movie E.T. And the theory goes that the game was so bad, so buggy and unplayable, that the company was left with millions of unwanted copies.
1: Legend has it, Atari desperately needed somewhere to dump the extra games and extra consoles from its El Paso factory.
0: But this idea has captured imaginations like Roswell and Area 51.
2: I would hear about that here and there. And people would ask me what I think about it, and I would say, I think it's baloney. But what happens
0: when someone picks up a shovel and starts to dig? From Business Insider and Stitcher, this is Household Name. Brands you can trust. Brands you know, stories you don't. I'm Dan Bobkoff. McDonald's Big Mac. Today, the legend of the Atari video game burial. Atari was the hottest game company in the 70s and early 80s. Then it appeared to collapse overnight. And this is where the mystery begins. Was it all because of E.T. the game? Did the company really bury millions of copies in a dump? And did one man single-handedly tank a whole industry? We have answers. Stay with us. To solve the mystery of the lost Atari game
2: cartridges, you have to meet Howard Scott Warshaw. The way I put it usually is, I'm the most famous person you've never heard of.
0: Howard arrived in Silicon Valley in 1979, straight out of college. He landed a job at HP, and this is before personal computers were mainstream.
2: You know, I had worked on the ARPANET, which later became widely known as the Internet. So, now I'm not saying I'm Al Gore. I'm just saying I was there.
0: At HP, Howard and his manager would play computer games to pass the time. Simple games like Yahtzee or car races. Very basic 70s stuff. Just text on a screen. And when he tired of that, he'd act out.
2: I would just do goofy stuff. I would do things in my cubicle, or I would take listing markers and make long chains of them and drape them around my cube. Howard was bored,
0: so he started looking for a place to work that was as interesting as he
2: was. And that's when he heard about life at Atari. That was the first time it actually occurred to me that Atari was like a company. It was a place someone could go and work.
0: Atari started in 1972. It was part of that first wave of Silicon Valley startups. Its first hit was Pong, which was also the first hit video game period. But unlike other startups, Atari sold out pretty quickly. Warner Communications bought the company in 1976. But after the sale, Atari kept its unique personality. What would you heard about the environment before you went there?
2: I just heard it was wacky. Mm -hmm.
0: That's all I heard. Howard landed an interview at Atari. And as soon as they started asking him questions,
2: he knew he was in the right place they were a combination of people drawing out logic diagrams and asking me to analyze and uh, follow through them and explain them to them. And there were also people saying, well, how do, you, how do you react to like marijuana smoke if you run into it at work? And so it was a pretty broad range. Seems like a very specific person for, for the job. Yeah, I was like perfect for it.
0: And yet Atari didn't think so at first. The Atari hiring manager called Howard to let him know he didn't get the job. And for most people, that would have been the end of it. But Howard is not most people.
2: I just said to him, I said, look, I said, I think you'd be making a really big mistake not giving me a chance to come here and show you what's going on. Howard wouldn't hang up the phone until the guy offered him a job. And finally he relented and just said, OK, you know, we'll give it a shot. And, uh... And like a month later, I started, you know, the very beginning of 81, I started at Atari. It was this weird orgy of creation and sensation and excitement because the job was to do something brand new. You know, usually you have nerds or you have artists. Now you need an artist, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. you need something that's like a hybrid of the two.
0: Whatever the Nardis at Atari were doing, or smoking, it was working. By the early 80s, Atari was king. Its Atari 2600 system had about 70% of the market share of home video games. Kids and adults were snatching up games like Pac-Man. Space Invaders.
2: Making these games was intense. There were days where you'd come in and you would see people being escorted out. There were days where you'd come in and you would see people literally being carried away to be taken to the psych wards because there were people who lost it at Atari. There were multiple nervous breakdowns that happened because there was also a lot of pressure. But Howard thrived at Atari. He started programming
0: some of the company's 80s hits. And he was innovating. He wrote Yars' Revenge, which he said has the first full-screen explosion in video games.
2: And Yars' Revenge is in uh, the New York Museum of Modern Art. So I'm actually listed as a Museum of Modern Art exhibitor. So after Yars' Revenge, were you kind of a celebrity in the company at this point? Um. No, I wouldn't say I was a celebrity in the company, uh, but I was known.
0: After he finished Yara's Revenge, Howard needed a new project. Meanwhile, Atari had just signed a deal with Steven Spielberg to turn Raiders of the Lost Ark
2: into a game. I was selected as a candidate to do Raiders. But if you're going to do Raiders, you don't just do Raiders. What you do is if you're going to do Raiders, if you're a candidate to do Raiders, then you have to go see Spielberg and Spielberg has to approve you. So he
0: flew down to L.A. to meet the one and only Steven Spielberg. He waited six hours for his one shot to make a good impression. And when he met him, Howard could have been deferential. But that's not Howard.
2: So I told him, you know, Steven, I have this theory about how you are actually an alien yourself. You know, would would you like to hear it? And he goes, sure. I'm honestly not sure if Howard is joking. If he actually thought
0: Spielberg might be an alien. But in any event, this is what he told him in the meeting where Stephen had to decide if Howard was the guy to make the Raiders game, that if aliens came to Earth, you know, they'd probably send an advance team to peacefully prepare
2: humans for their arrival. And I said, you know, look at your movies. You know, you're one of the first people who's really done multiple movies about how the aliens are friendly. They're nice people that we meet them and there's no danger and they're, they're nice and we can all get along. And I said, so that's pretty cool. And uh, so I said, I figure you're like the production arm of this advanced team. And I said, and your marketing people, they've made sure that these movies have been seen all over the earth in every language, all over the place. It's the perfect way to prepare earth (laughs) to meet the aliens. And I said, by the way, kudos to your marketing team. I think they're doing a hell of a job. And, uh, And I think he was really tickled by this. I think he really kind of enjoyed that. And so uh, we just said goodbye, and that was it. And I flew back up to uh, San Jose, and then I found out the next day that, you know, yep, Howard's going to do Raiders. How much time did you
0: spend on Raiders? I spent nine months on Raiders. Because nine months is how long it took to create a good game back then. Raiders was a big hit. It sold a million copies. And around this time, Spielberg released another blockbuster movie.
2: E T. Home. Oh. And then on uh, July 27th of 1982, a date that will live in infamy forever, I got a call from Ray Kazar, which never happens. Ray Kazar the big boss, the head of Atari. He comes on, he goes, hey, Howard. He goes, we need E.T. for September 1st. This is July 27th. In exactly five weeks, we need uh, E.T. No one's ever done a game in five weeks. No one's ever really done a game in less than five months. He goes, can you do it? And I said to him, absolutely, I can. Absolutely, there's no question.
0: Coming up, Howard accepts the challenge And a legend is born. Stay with us.
1: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. With available H-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: We're back. Yar's Revenge was a hit. Raiders of the Lost Ark was a hit. Howard was on a high at Atari.
2: The amazing drug at Atari was when you could get your game released, go into a store, see people playing your game. The ultimate version of this is when you see kids fighting over the controller to play your game on the demo. That's the ultimate high at Atari.
0: Howard had had months to perfect Yara's Revenge in Raiders, But getting the deal done for E.T. took a while. It was now into the summer, and his bosses wanted E.T. to be done in time for the Christmas shopping season. That meant Howard was only going to have five weeks to design the game, code it, and send it off for production. But Howard wasn't even nervous.
2: I needed a challenge. For some reason, I needed to validate, prove, test myself, however you want to put it. I just really needed to do something that I felt was a real mountain to climb. So, brimming with
0: confidence, he said yes to his boss, Ray Kazar.
2: He goes, okay, Thursday morning at 8 a.m., there will be a Learjet waiting for you at the San Jose Terminal. Be on it, and we're going to go present the design to Spielberg. So, not only do I have to do a game in five weeks, I have to design the entire game (laughs) in 36 hours and be ready to present that design to Steven Spielberg. So, I just said, cool. Cool. Because I'd never been on a Learjet, and I thought that would be really cool.
0: This time in Spielberg's office, Howard did not accuse him of being a secret alien. He showed him the storyboards he'd thrown together in a day and a half.
2: He's looking it over, and then he goes, "Uh, so, that's the game. I go, yeah, what do you think? And he thinks it over, and he goes, couldn't you do something more like (laughs) Pac-Man? And that just blew my mind, blew my mind. And I wanted to say, gee, Stephen, couldn't you do something more like The Day the Earth Stood Still? I mean, I was really uh, put off by the idea that one of the most innovative directors wants me to do a knockoff for the game <laughs> for his really solid movie. But I didn't say that because <laughs> this is Steven Spielberg, and it would have been an absurd thing to do. So what I said to him was, you know, Steven, E.T. is really a breakthrough movie. It's a, very, uh, it's a really special movie, and I think it needs a special game. It needs something solid and innovative to match you know, what you've done with the game. And I, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing a knockoff or something like that. We want to do something solid and fresh for this. And he was like, okay. You know, he was very cool with it. I think he just liked Pac-Man was what was going on. <laughs> it hadn't
0: been that hard for Howard to adapt Raiders into a video game. It was an action-adventure. The suspense and drama translated well as a game plot. But E.T.
2: was different. I wanted the game to have some emotional feel, some tone. Hmm. That's how gone I was. That's how crazy I was that I thought I could actually pull this off.
0: Five weeks. Howard didn't sleep much. He had a workstation installed in his home so he could keep coding. Someone at work had to remind him to eat.
2: How do you play E.T.? So, ET starts off with the spaceship coming down and dropping you off in the forest.
0: You're ET in the game. ET's friend Elliot's there too.
2: There's Elliot's house, there's the FBI building, and there's the Science Institute. And because those represent the three humans that are represented in the game there's Elliot, there's an FBI agent, and there's a scientist. And then
0: there are the pits. It's in these pits where you, as E.T., find pieces of a phone. Once you put them all together, E.T. can phone
2: home. And that's how you win the game. Only from Atari, the video game
0: that lets you help E.T. get home, just in time for
2: Christmas. Oh, so when the game comes out, it's a phenomenal success. You know, in December of 1982, it is a good time to be Howard. I have Yars Revenge is selling well and and rolling off the shelves. And both Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. are in like the top six or seven of the Billboard top 100 selling video games. But this
0: was 1982.
2: There was no internet, no
0: reaction videos roasting Atari's E.T. on YouTube, no angry Reddit threads, no Twitter trolls trashing the game. So Howard knew people were buying the game. But he had no idea if any of those players actually liked it. When did you realize that there was a serious problem with ET, and how did you feel about that?
2: There's some question as to, did I ever realize there was a problem with ET? Because you got to understand that for me, ET was a tremendous success, right? I had delivered the product in this ridiculous time frame. It went out. It was doing well in the charts. It was doing well in sales. It was all good. It wasn't perfect, but it was really good. And it was still an achievement. But in the weeks that followed, something weird
0: started happening. Executives would drop by and walk through the development area.
2: Every once in a while, someone would come up to me and they would go, You know something, Howard? We don't blame you. You really came through for us. Mm -hmm. And I'd be thinking... Okay, well that's cool, but I had no idea what they were talking about because they wouldn't say ET or stuff like this. They would just come up to you and they go, "You know, nobody blames you, Howard. This isn't on you. You know, you really you really came through. That was cool." And I'm thinking, "That's nice, but I what are they talking about?"
0: In homes across America, players were unboxing ET, plopping the cartridge into their Atari 2600s. And then falling into those pits and getting stuck there.
2: The returns start going on. The people start saying, oh, this game sucks, and it's got a lot of problems, and you just keep falling into the pits, and blah, blah, blah. Stores were getting lots of returns.
0: All of a sudden, things were looking bleak. But it wasn't just because of E.T. The whole video game market was saturated. New companies were getting into games every day. And the games they were producing weren't any good. The industry lost hundreds of millions of dollars in 1983. Thousands of people lost their jobs. For Atari, things went downhill fast. The company lost about half a billion dollars in 1983. It kicked out its CEO, brought in a new one. There were massive layoffs, unsold video games piling up. Atari was essentially over. It was just gone. And there wasn't a sense, you know, because like right now there's this narrative that like E.T. is the game that sank Atari, but nobody was talking that way then.
2: No, nobody. No, because Atari had just disappeared. People were more about oh, video games disappeared. It was the hula hoop. It was the fad that died. It was the pet rock, right? And that that was the story. People weren't focused on why Atari failed. People were focused on the fact that this amazing phenomenon of video games suddenly disappeared. That was the story. Atari tidied itself
0: over by selling its leftover stock of game consoles while it tried to develop a home computer. Howard stuck around until 1984. The company changed hands again, and he took a layoff package.
2: So now I'm in a really weird place, because now I had found total fulfillment professionally, creatively, in every way. And now it's over. There was never going to be another Atari. It was, that would never be replicated.
0: Howard was kind of lost after he left Atari. He tried real estate, but that wasn't for him. He did a stint working on industrial robots. He wrote a book, did some video production. He tried to move on. But almost a decade after he left Atari,
2: he started hearing about E.T. again. About in, in 95, there was a magazine called New Media Magazine, and they said E.T. was the thing that caused the crash of the video game industry. And so throughout the rest of the 90s and into the 2000s and stuff, uh, that was the story.
0: And it was on this new thing called the Internet in the 90s that this narrative really took hold. Some people online became convinced that not only was E.T. the video game the worst of all time, not only did it sink an entire industry... But Atari was so desperate to get rid of the evidence that it had chucked millions of unsold copies of the game into a hole somewhere in New Mexico. You can still find old message board posts about this from Atari fans. Like there's this one where someone asks, does anyone know the exact location of the landfill that is filled with millions of Atari games? Another person responds, wasn't that a hoax? Year after year, this idea, this legend stuck around. It turned into an internet inside joke. A couple of YouTubers even spent eight years making a feature-length science fiction parody film about it. I heard that Atari recalled all the cartridges and buried them somewhere in the middle of the desert because the game was so bad. They crowdfunded 300 grand to make this thing, but other Atari fans took the legend more seriously. They started doing more research, digging through archives and doing back-of-the-envelope math, and the more they looked into it, the more it seemed like the legend might actually be true. Like, tons of ET game cartridges might be buried in one specific landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Coming up, a documentary crew makes the trip to Alamogordo, and they start digging. Stay with us.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. Today, Hollywood film crews dug into an Alamogordo landfill in hopes of uncovering the widely criticized 1982 video game E.T. For video gamers, it is a legendary landfill, a tomb where an entire industry was nearly buried. Now, someone wants to dig them up.
3: I'm Zach Penn. I'm a screenwriter, sometimes director, occasional producer, and rarely... An actor. And also an Atari aficionado? Yes, I like Atari a lot. I like a lot of video games. And
0: it's because Zach Penn likes Atari a lot that he said yes when someone asked him to direct a documentary about E.T. and the fall of Atari. Unlike those on the internet, Zach wasn't obsessed with the legend. When Zach was growing up, his friend had a copy of E.T. Zach might have played it once, but it didn't make a big impression on him.
3: But he does remember how Atari was this huge deal, and then it wasn't. Atari literally disappeared in a way that is almost unfathomable. It would be like if Apple went out of business, you know, in six months. And next year, people are like, oh, what's that? iMac? that's cute. So in 2014,
0: after he signed on to direct the documentary, Zach Penn showed up at a town dump with an excavation team and a lot of expensive digging equipment.
1: Well, today there was a massive dig at that landfill as Crooms filmed for a documentary to find out the truth once and for all.
3: Well, my initial expectations were that this wasn't going to take long, that how hard could it be to dig up a bunch of stuff? You know, probably a good chance we won't find it because, I mean, it's always hard to find things buried in the ground. And on the off chance there was anything
0: buried in the ground... Well, that would be amazing. Zach really liked the ridiculousness
3: of the situation. and had a quality he looked for in his films. Oh my God, what if we find out the secret? But it's also like very hilariously banal. And he figured if his team dug up the landfill and didn't find anything, they'd at least
0: have some solid material for a mockumentary. But either way, Zach wasn't taking the legend of the Atari burial super seriously.
3: What really changed everything was going to interview Howard Warshaw, and that's when I started to realize, wait, I might actually have something else on my hands here, and I maybe don't need to worry as much about uh, the meta version of all this.
2: I gave him many, many hours of material, and uh, then I found out that his specialty is doing mockumentaries. And I love mockumentaries, but I never wanted to be the star of one. Uh-huh. I thought, holy crap, with all the, all the material that I gave him, if he really wanted to do like a hatchet job or a mockumentary on me, he could do like a legendary job on me.
3: When I saw Howard Warshaw and how serious it was to him, you know, the irony dropped away. Um, it was no longer... You know, I was just being genuine. There was nothing ironic anymore. Now it was actually, we were all really invested in. We want to find these games. Uh, we want the story to have, you know, to come to some sort of conclusion.
0: So, how do you actually go searching for buried trash? For Zach, it meant getting in touch with a garbage collector named Joe Lewandowski. Joe claimed he actually saw the burial happen back in 1983. And he's spent years trying to triangulate the exact position of the cartridges. This is Zach and Joe in a scene from the documentary, Atari Game Over.
3: So this is the famous landfill, the yeah. burial, the final resting ground of E.T. Yeah, this is the place, uh, this, this road here, this gate, this is exactly the way the Atari's would have came through. So, so this whole area, this is where it's buried? Some people don't believe it's there, but trust me, it's there. So all that
0: was left was to dig. On the first morning of the dig, hundreds of Atari fans showed up to watch.
3: We've been here for a while already. It's tedious. The wind's horrible. We're wondering if they're going to find anything or not. First of all, getting out there, as you can imagine, a landfill does not smell good. In fact, I, you know, most people described it as the most uniquely bad smell they'd ever experienced. It's something, there's something unnatural about it. It does smell a little bit like garbage, but it's like garbage from space or something. I don't know how to describe it. Like a burning tire mixed with garbage mixed with moon rocks or something. And you could not get it off you. Like you, I had to launder my sneakers like five times just to get them and put them in a plastic bag.
2: The surge for what many call
1: the worst Atari game ever at a New Mexico dump is still in full swing tonight.
0: Howard Scott Warshaw made the trip from California to see this. He was nervous, seeing his past literally dug up. What was it like being there?
2: It was was intense. It was very intense to be there. Uh, It was surprising how it kind of snuck up on me. But he was still skeptical they'd find anything. I've never been so anxious to be wrong in my life because I never really believed the stuff was there, but I realized that movie would be much worse if the stuff wasn't there.
3: As you can imagine, with 500 people out there now and everybody waiting to see, it got really tense. And then a sandstorm came in, uh, which was insane. Like, from the white sands blew in. All right, now the wind is really picking up. On cue. On cue. On cue
2: and it was just a sandstorm. I mean, there was literally a sandstorm. I mean, this huge, horrible sandstorm. It was brutal. For hours, they dug and dug, dozens of
0: feet underground. Through dirt, then layers of concrete, they pulled up bits of trash, nothing from Atari.
1: Trash bags, Stroh's beer cans, wood, tons of wood. We're right about where we need to be, but there's still no Atari detritus at all.
3: There was definitely a worry that we were not finding the games. Joe was very confident, and I don't really show this in the movie, but we were all feeling pretty confident that we knew where the games were based on, you know, what he had done so far. But then he started to worry that maybe he was digging in the wrong direction. It was the third day of the dig,
0: in the afternoon. The archeologists called Joe and Zach Penn over to the excavation
3: site. They showed them something, in a bucket, they came over and like, you got to come see, you got to come look, and there was, you know, the first E.T. cartridge that we found. Can everybody hear me? We found something. Uh, the archaeologists have confirmed it's from 1983, 28 feet down. It's E.T. the video game, intact in its box.
2: Howard's in the
0: crowd taking this all in.
2: When they found it, it it was a very emotional moment for me. But it started coming up in buckets and clawfuls. There were piles overflowing with crushed cardboard boxes.
0: But the E.T. cartridges inside looked like new. Atari fans recorded videos on their phones and took selfies. They lined up to shake Howard's hand.
2: And in that moment, I realized that this thing that I did like over 30 years ago this little 8K of computer code that I wrote was still, look, there were hundreds and hundreds of people braving a sandstorm to be in this place for this event. And I realized I did something that created this event that, that, that led to this experience that over 30 years later, this product that I did is still creating interest and interaction and excitement for people. The greatest success that I had with ET probably was that moment the idea that I, was, that I could still feel like I had launched something that was generating this kind of entertainment and excitement for a, a whole bunch of people. So it was true,
0: in a way. Atari really did bury stuff in a New Mexico dump. But after Howard and Zach and the crowd took stock, they realized it didn't quite live up to the myth. First of all, Atari buried all sorts of stuff there, not just E.T. There was computer equipment, other games... As it turned out, only 10% of what they found were old E.T. cartridges. But all this raised another question.
3: Why were they buried here in the first place? And basically what it came down to was burying them was cheaper than destroying them. Like, (laughs) weirdly, it cost a lot more to actually incinerate the games than it did to bury them. And they usually buried them in Texas, and that's where they were all stored in some warehouse. And the problem was that there were looters. And it was also that they found this place in New Mexico that was cheaper. Uh, And that was really the deciding factor is what's the cheapest place to bury them that we also have some protection from looters. So the real reason the
0: games were entombed in Alamogordo was less exciting than the legend. But even though Zach and his team didn't unearth a gigantic conspiracy, this moment was still important. It started to rewrite the whole narrative about Atari and E.T.
3: and Howard. I think for Howard... Warshaw, the fact that there was all these people out there to get his autograph, you know, this is a guy who had left the business. And there's all these people who were like, huge fans of his. So for him, the fact that this had turned into this weird celebration of him and his work, you could imagine, I mean, it was pretty overwhelming for him. Uh, And I think also, if you ever stand around in a horrible, smelly place for eight hours hoping to find something, I mean, you could be looking for a spoon and you'd be excited when it came out of the ground.
0: I wanted to know why were so many so fascinated by this legend? It was, after all, literally a
3: failing company's trash. The second something becomes buried, there's something deep in our minds that says it's a secret, it's treasure, we need to find the answer. And now this
0: failure of a game was treasure. After the dig, people wanted to buy the E.T. game. So the city of Alamogordo sold the unearthed cartridges. There were nearly a 1,000 of them. One sold for $1,500 alone. The city pocketed more than
2: $60,000 from the sale. Did you feel vindicated? I did feel vindicated. There's a number of things that I've cried about with E.T. Some of them were happy. But it's brought me enough tension over the years, but it's also brought me some real insight and satisfaction. And Howard's moving
0: on from E.T. He finally landed on a new career. Well, I'm the Silicon Valley therapist. That's right. After bouncing from job to job, industry to industry, Howard realized his experience with E.T. wasn't actually unique. Lots of people in Silicon Valley experience spectacular success and phenomenal failures all the
2: time. And I'm a very good person for them to talk to. (laughs) When I left Atari, there was that dream of finding a place that I would be happy with and satisfied with again. That's what I needed to do. I didn't know how I would do it or where I would do it, and it started like a 20 year journey to try and find gratification. And I, as I became a therapist at each step along the way, what I realized was this was it. This is the first time in almost three decades since leaving Atari that I actually found work that was as not only as fulfilling and satisfying uh, as Atari was, it actually exceeds that. I got there. It only took like almost 30 years. <laughs> Howard Scott Warshaw.
0: You can see the dig for yourself in Zach Penn's film, Atari Game Over. Let us know what you think of the show. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Send us an email to householdname at insider.com Follow me on Twitter at Dan Bobkoff or join the interesting conversations in our Facebook group. This episode was produced by Sarah Wyman and me with Amy Padula and Jennifer Siegel. Special thanks to Hannah Wall, Jonaki Mehta, Andrew Stelzer, and Q Media International. Sound design and original music by Casey Holford and John Delore. Our editor is Gianna Palmer. The executive producers are Chris Bannon and me. Household Name is a production of Insider Audio.